Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a dramatic past, I'd say, 10 days or so. Uh, in Zimbabwe, of all places. And there has been, from last week to this week, uh, a, a, we're not going to, I don't know, do we call this a coup? It's not really a coup. It's kind of like a coup light. Uh, but there has been a, a military overthrow of the Mugabe government, something that we had not anticipated that we would have seen. Now, what's very interesting from our point of view here at the China and Africa podcast is the connection with China. Now, it's interesting because China has had this very, very complex relationship with Zimbabwe and Robert Mugabe. And it's been this relationship that dates back decades and decades. In fact, the Chinese always referred to Mugabe as an old friend. And that goes all the way back to China's revolutionary period during the Mao era, in fact. And over the past, say, 20, 30 years, China was that old friend that stood by while the rest of the world uh, isolated and attempt to alienate uh, Robert Mugabe, as he, you know, reciprocated as well. And there was this tension with the, the Europeans and the Americans, but the Chinese continued to provide aid to some extent, certainly weapons, uh, and at the same time, political support that he didn't get anywhere else. But over the past, say, four or five years, maybe, Kobus, there was a cooling in the relationship. Mugabe, desperate for cash, went to China. He left empty-handed. Uh, investment from China into the mines uh, and, and also, of course, we had the case of Sam Pa, who was the corrupt or allegedly corrupt deal maker between the Chinese and, and Africans. He too was involved in Zimbabwe. He got ensnared in Xi Jinping's anti-corruption crackdown. All of this related to to Chinese engagement in Zimbabwe, but it started to chill a little bit. And Kobus, we saw a really a distancing of the relationship over the past couple of years, which really makes it interesting what we're going to talk about today. China kept calling Mugabe an old friend. They kept paying lip service to this relationship. But in reality, the relationship got more and more frosty as time go time went on. And you got the, the feeling that um, Zimbabwe was maybe a little bit problematic for the Chinese. Um, and also that there were worries in China about the sustainability of, of Zimbabwe's economy and the repayment of large Chinese loans. So now it's, you know, the, the coup raises all of these questions, including what's going to happen for with Zimbabwe in the future and what China's role is going to be. Now, the Chinese had anticipated the day that Robert Mugabe eventually would step down from power. Most people thought, of course, that he would die in office. That was the assumption uh, that, that people had up until a week ago. Uh, this came as very much a surprise for a lot of people. In fact, the Chinese had already been building relationships with Morgan Changarai from the MDC and other opposition parties, dating it back as far as 2012 when they invited Changarai to Beijing. And that was seen as a real break because it really was this, this visible sign to the Mugabe government that the Chinese were hedging their bets and wondering what happens when Mugabe leaves, will the Chinese be locked out of a new Zimbabwe government? But now we have this situation where Mnangagwa is really a, con it's some, as, as a continuity in sense from the Mugabe government. He's not, an, oh, he's not a new power, he's not the opposition. But before we get to our guest today, let's kind of highlight one very important point here. And this is what so much of the speculation about China's role has focused on. One week before 
the Again, what are we calling it, Cobus? Is it a coup? Is it not a coup? I think we, we can just probably call it a coup. I mean, you know, okay. that's what people we'll have been calling it. it. Okay, we'll call it a coup for shorthand. A, a coup has a slightly different definition. But Zimbabwe Army Commander Constantino Chiwenga went to Beijing. And this is what's so interesting because nobody knows what exactly was said. Did he go there with the intention to inform the Chinese to get a blessing? The Chinese allege that this was part of a regularly scheduled military visit that happens and that this was just normal state-to-state business. They deny that they were involved in any way. There is absolutely no evidence to suggest that the Chinese in any way either sanctioned, organized, were involved in what happened in Zimbabwe. That does not mean they were not informed in advance to either get their pulse or to tell everybody, you know, chill out, it's all going to be okay. Incidentally, there are reports coming out now that that, uh, Chiwenga's forces also informed the United States, and we don't know if they engaged the British as well. So that is the the background to what's been a, a very dramatic past week, and we wanted to get some perspective on what this means. Where do we go from here now with a new government under the control of Emerson Ngangwa and uh, presumably Constantino Chiwenga in uh, atop the military. So we've invited, actually, Cobus's boss, his new boss, Stephen Gruz, who's the head of governance and foreign policy programs at the South African Institute of International Affairs. He's been a longtime follower of Zimbabwean politics. And Stephen, we are thrilled to have you on the show for the first time. Thank you very much. I look forward to chatting to you guys. Well, my head is spinning from all the things that, uh, that we've just been talking about because so much has happened over the past week. Um, now that we have a new president in power, uh, a president, incidentally, who also has a long-standing relationship with China as well, what's your forecast for where we go from here in Zimbabwe? What are we to expect now over the coming weeks and months? So he was inaugurated uh, earlier today, in fact, about an, an, an hour ago uh, at the time that we're talking. And he was making some, the right noises in his inauguration speech. He talked about the need for reconciliation, that he was going to be a president for, for all of Zimbabwe and not only the ruling ZANU-PF, uh, that the economy had to be tackled and, and very seriously, that uh, jobs need to be created. He called on civil servants to put their shoulders to the wheel and uh, uh, work hard. Uh, he also said that the land uh, reform, the rapid land reform and the uh, confiscation of farms that happened in the in the early 2000s could not be reversed, but he did talk about compensation. So I, and, and I think most significantly for, for our purposes, he also reached out to the international community, said that uh, Zimbabwe needs to be given a chance and that uh, the sanctions need to be lifted and that... Uh, Zimbabwe needs to be reintegrated. My words, not his, into the family of nations. Uh, you know, put let's 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 let bygones be bygones and have a new start and a fresh start, and uh, uh, reverse the isolation that the country has faced over over so many years, particularly from the West. Now, Kobus, as uh, let me let me just quickly come to you very quickly for a China perspective on what Stephen has talked about. When he's trying to talk about in- inviting investment into Zimbabwe, this is a country that is uh, probably, and, and again, I might be overstating it, but it's not really ripe for investment right now. It's got a lot of potential, certainly tobacco, agricultural, diamond mining. Uh, there are a lot, there is a lot there. Uh, there's not a lot of countries or companies that may have the stomach for it. Certainly China is already primed to go. The British probably are not really eager to be there. Uh, they want to see what happens. Talk to us a little bit about the China side of all this. 
I think the British might be more enthusiastic than they look. Like they've they've kept relatively close. I think um, you know Stephen will know more about this than I do, but they've kept relatively close, um, you know, contact with Zimbabwe even in the in the difficult years. Um, but you know, we'd like Stephen feel free to to expand on that. Um, in terms of China, um, you know, China already has has quite large investments in Zimbabwe, but they were they were in, in lots of cases they were especially in the the case of the Marange diamond fields, they weren't normal investments or let me rather say they were they were complicated investments that had um, a lot of Zimbabwean stakeholdership and then they underwent a process of indigenization um, which where even the the kind of minority Chinese shareholdership was then supposed to also be Zimbabwe um, which, and that was one of the one of the incidents that led to a, a real cooling down of relationships between China and, and Zimbabwe. So I think uh, how these tools tools like the indigenization you know set of laws how, how those are, those are going to be used in the future is going to depend is going to define a lot of how Chinese investment looks in the future in Zimbabwe. Um, in, in relation to the Brits, um, Stephen, what, what do you think? Like, what was the UK's relationship with with Mugabe up to now and um, how is it going to go into the future? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was actually in Harare in June last year and I managed to speak to uh, the British High Commission there and they told me a quite senior diplomat said that they were at that point talking to all sides. Uh, At that point, uh, Joyce Majuru was seen as being in the picture. Of course, she was the Uh, vice president that was fired in 2014 and then went and formed the Zimbabwe People First Party, noticed similar, uh, well, same initials initials as ZANU-PF. And uh, she was, they they had said that they were talking to all sides Um, at that point. uh, So so there certainly was contact. Of course, on the rhetorical level, there was a lot of criticism uh, after the land invasions in 2000 and and relations went very frosty uh, thereafter. At that time, Tony Blair was in office. And of course, Mugabe loved to rail against Bush and Blair from his, uh, in in his speeches, you know, whether he was at the UN or on other international platforms. Britain was certainly behind uh, sanctions being placed on Mugabe and his inner circle and a number of Zimbabwean officials. Um, and so relationships have been quite difficult. But for sure they've been talking to Manangagwa and I. they, they still have uh, substantial investments in Zimbabwe and we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I think they, they may well want to reinvest and re-engage uh, to a greater extent now that President Mugabe himself, that very polarizing figure, has has left the scene. Although, as you've said, uh, Manangagwa was at Mugabe's side for a lot of uh, the problematic, uh, well, certainly what the West sees as problematic incidents in Zimbabwean history. So, if we work backwards, he was, um, you know, in- instrumental in the 2008 uh, election campaign when there was it looked very uh, clear that Ch- Changarai had won. And uh, a second election was held, and there was an intimidation uh, of voters. Uh, he was also involved in, in Operation Murabatsvina, uh, which cleared the slums of Harare, and most uh, notoriously was very involved in the 19, early 1980s in the, the purges against uh, the Ndebele tribe in Matabili land, where thousands and thousands of people were killed and tortured. So uh, he's not uh, starting from a clean slate. No. But, you know, when I was watching the events unfold over the past few days, um, as a China watcher, 
I I really felt that this was a, an important moment, and I will express my biases up front that I do emphasize the China side of the equation oftentimes more than the other sides, uh, just because I'm here and I see a lot more of it. But something really felt big and monumental about what happened. And I really believe that 20 years ago, if this was to happen, that uh, Chuenga would he, he, even if he had a regularly scheduled trip to Beijing, he would have changed his plans to go to Washington or to London or to Brussels. He would not have gone to Beijing. He went to Beijing. He didn't go to a Western capital. He didn't go anywhere. He didn't even go to South Africa. He went to Beijing. He went to talk with the Chinese leadership. We don't know about what, and there is absolutely no way to accurately speculate about what. So for me... This was symbolic in many ways about what Chiwenga did. Uh, did you, does this represent, am I reading too much into it? A lot of the international press coverage shares my, my sense that something happened here, that China, that Zimbabwe represents Africa's new direction towards China away from the West. And did you see that as well in what you were reading and the people you're talking with? Or did something else come up? Was this just really a coincidence that he went a week before the events unfolded? So I think it's, as you say, we're not flies on the wall and we don't know what was actually said. But if you saw the way that the military operation was executed, it it had clearly been uh, thought out and planned. Some have said, I've heard it said that it was... Uh, had to be pushed forward a few weeks because uh, of the firing of Minangagwa and that uh, galvanized uh, the military and their opposition to Mugabe's wife, Grace, who was seen as uh, the next in line for power with, with Minangagwa fired from the vice presidency. But indeed, I think it's, it's very significant that there was a trip to China. We don't know what was said. And as, you've say, as you say, there have been official denials. Uh, I saw the, the Chinese embassy in South Africa also uh, denied that there were, this was anything but a routine uh, visit, but uh, it, it does seem like uh, quite a quite a significant coincidence uh, because China's comments were quite moot, moot, mooted. I mean, I, in fact, I think everybody's comments when the initial military take, takeover took place and the, the, the it was they were very careful not to call it a coup d'état because if it is a coup d'état, that triggers all sorts of condemnations and and bannings from the Southern African Development Community, known as SADC and the African Union, uh, the country would be suspended, etc., etc. So it was a very strange coup. Some people have coined the phrase a democracy coup, uh, that it was something in between a, a, a coup d'etat and, and forcing the political needle. But uh, yeah, I, I think the, the, the visit to, to Beijing is, is indeed significant. Kobus, let me get your take on this as well, if I can. I just, I really want to get your point of view on this because it's so important. And I think it's worth, before we hear what you have to say on this, prefacing that, remember, China of all countries uh, really, really hates regime change. This is not in their language. This is, it's very much in an American language and very much an American tradition. But the Chinese will stand by their man, even if their man is Robert Mugabe for a long time, who's passed his for sale date. Uh, and they say, and they stand by him. And I guess my question for you is, Kobus, do you really believe that Chiwenga and Mnangangwa and all the other people involved in this would have gone forward if China said no? That is, China would have cut off its investments. China would have cut off its military trade. China would have cut off the limited amount of aid that it got, that it, that it had. So, do you think, in some ways, China was a, a linchpin, 
or was China just one of the many other countries that that may have been informed about this and they would have gone ahead with it anyway? Yeah, this is this is a difficult question to answer. Um, <clears throat> my feeling is that is that the international press press coverage of of this incident has run roughshod a little bit about the distinction between whether China was simply informed and whether China was an instrumental actor, whether China was pushing for regime change and whether it was simply informed of a coming change of government. Um, I would... I would be much more comfortable going with the China was informed um, line rather than China was instrumentally pushing for something. That does that seems very far away from any kind of precedent. But that what we've seen in China, China's dealings with Africa before, and I mean, you know, the, the you know, you can really not say enough bad things about Mugabe. But you know, the Mugabe government wasn't as chaotic as in you know it wasn't a situation like in South Sudan. Um, you know, and even even in in a situation as dire as South Sudan, China is not you know kind of sending in some kind of secret service or dealing doing you know, using any of the the tactics of regime change that that we've seen the US use sometimes in the past. So, um, you know, that that feels to me too far. Um, in terms of China simply being being informed that is itself significant as you as you said like it's it's significant that china is informed um and then but you know then it becomes this very very gray area where it it seems yeah you know kind of you know the 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 issue is whether whether they were simply told well this is happening you know get ready um or whether there was a, a you know more of a discussion about timing or you, you know tactics or whatever and there you know i've i have no idea but but in in generally i i you know i would hazard a guess that they probably knew a little while before it happened that it was going to happen um but i don't know that they were necessarily more involved than that um eric what, what do you think i i fully agree um there is and again we have to go on the evidence that we have and this is what i said on linkedin uh, where I hosted a discussion about this, that we don't have any evidence that the Chinese were anywhere involved in this. And it really annoyed me to no end to see these headlines from even some reputable publications that implied that the Chinese were somehow the the hand behind the Chiwanga troops as they moved through Hurare. And we, we just don't have any evidence of that. And there is also, again, no nowhere in the history that supports that type of um, of behavior for the Chinese. In fact, the Chinese, after what happened in Libya with the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi and their abstention from UN Resolution 1972, which granted authorization for the United States and Europe to intervene in Libya, uh, and the Chinese got really upset with how far that went and how they felt that the Americans and the French took that resolution and pushed it to regime change when it was only supposed to protect civilians. Um, there was this sense in Beijing that says, we're not going to do this anymore. So we're never going to be a part of these types of regime changes. And so that is more of the instinct of the Chinese than to be playing this hand. And I think a lot of people, Kobus, you and I have talked about this so many times, they will take the Chinese and bring them into a Western colonial narrative, and it just doesn't fit. And, and I think that's probably what's going on. But I guess, Stephen, let me, let me come to you about the precedent that might have been set here. Uh, Robert Mugabe is not the only dictator in Africa. Uh, Robert Mugabe is not the only unpopular leader in Africa. In fact, your own country has a, a highly unpopular leader. Um, and so what we saw now over the past week was a bloodless coup 
a way to avoid international sanctions, the blessing of some foreign governments, including the Chinese and the Americans, or maybe not the blessing, at least the abstention of any criticism. Do you get a sense that we might be in for a bumpy ride now for some of the other dictatorships or less than popular governments, either in the Southern African region or anywhere on the continent? Well, I think a couple of things are important. One I th- is is the respect with which Mugabe was held uh, in his country, even with all the many problems he's caused it over the last 37 years. So, you know, we, we saw those photographs of uh, him sh- uh, shaking hands with the military and that bizarre non-resignation speech on Sunday night. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think in that country he was really, you know, he, he, he was the founding father and, and is held in great esteem. Um, I think some of the less democratic leaders in the continent are probably not sleeping as well as they used to. I, haven't, I think the context is, is very different, though, in, 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 in every country. But what was also interesting for me was that once the tide had turned again, Mugabe. I mean, his own party that he was so instrumental in founding and keeping in government was prepared to impeach him. They actually started impeachment proceedings. Uh, They were hoping it was going to go for a few days. And I think uh, that that tipped the balance and led to his resignation, even though he had the opportunity to resign uh, on on television the night before. Um, And so he left, uh, you know, not in circumstances of his own choosing. Um, I think that uh, yeah, other governments are going to be worried. But uh, you also got to remember, I think, that uh, the military is strong in many African states, and, and it's not only the, uh, the defending the borders, but usually defending state house, um, whether that's a, a, a militia or a, you know, separately trained guards, etc. Um, so, uh, you know, the Arab Spring began in, in uh, Tunisia and soon spread to the other North African states. So we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but, I, you know, it, it, it presented this weird conundrum for the African Union and for SADC because it was a coup in everything but name. Uh, but then we had, you know, President Mugabe going on Friday morning to a, a graduation ceremony at the University of Zimbabwe, dressed in his robes. Uh, and appearing on TV with the generals flanking him. So very weird, very strange. Um, and they seem to have got away with it because um, it was indeed, you know, it was a military non-democratic uh, way of, of uh, changing, the, changing the leader of, reg- of what we would call regime change. So um, I think the scholars are going to be mulling over this one for, for many weeks and months and years. Um, but yeah, some some uh, embattled presidents may be thinking twice to see actually when sure. the, when the chips are down, you you know your party can turn on you. Yeah, so it seems like this was a unique situation, um, and, and the situation in Zimbabwe, in in one way though, is very typical of a growing number of African countries in terms of its relationship with China. Uh, Zim- China is Zimbabwe's top export market. It is the number one source of foreign direct investment, a staggering 74% now. And what's interesting is that that was, you know, relatively new over the past 15, 20 years. And and the Chinese are also, you know, delivering massive amounts of aid and investment. Uh, $4 billion was agreed to go in 2016, including $46 million for the the building of the Zimbabwe's, the new parliament building in, in Harare. So... 
the Chinese influence is only going to get stronger. And Kobus, I'm curious about what you think in terms of these relationships. And let's go back to the old friend thing, because it's not just Robert Mugabe. Mnangagwa also uh, dates back to the 60s with the Chinese. Uh, and after he was ousted of, of his vice presidency uh, in 2000, November, he, went, he too went to China. Um, and so he has a lot of different relationships, deep relationships with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they go back a long time. Uh, given China's role as the largest source of FDI, its largest trading partner, it's, of course, building the parliament building, and his own personal relationships, what are you forecasting now looking forward in terms of Mnangagwa's approach to the international community, but specifically China? Yeah, you're, com- you're completely right. He, he, was, he received military training in China, apparently, during the anti-colonial struggle. In the 60s, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and he also, both him and Constantino Chiwengo, Chiwenga, is, um, they apparently have both benefited from the army's investment um, in the diamond fields. That, that was a, a kind of a, a co-investment between Chinese companies and the Zimbabwean army. Um, so apparently they, they benefited from, um, from uh, having a kind of a subsidiary that was invested in, in, a, in a Zimbabwean Chinese company, diamond company, that, was, that subsidiary was owned by, by um, figures within the military. Um, so, you know, there, there's, there's financial links there too. And then it becomes an issue about what one means when one says China, right? Because the, the relationship between um, Mugabe and the Communist Party and Nangangwa and the Communist Party, that's one thing, these kind of diplomatic political relationships. But there's also strong commercial relationships, um, you know, between between Chinese companies um, and these figures in the Zimbabwean army. So, you know, that raises a lot of questions about how these how these things are going to be balanced. But I think the one thing it makes clear is that China's pretty much there to stay, I think. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I, I would be surprised if there was a significant diminishment of Chinese involvement in Zimbabwe over the next few years. Um, what I'm wondering is, you know, to a large extent, they are, these two, the um, Nangagwa and Chiwenga, are kind of old guard. I mean, Nangagwa is in his 70s. Um, and so they, they are roughly the same, you know, slightly younger, but they're the same kind of generation and and also political, you know, army-linked political ZANU people as, as Mugabe was. Um, Stephen, what, what do you think is going to happen to the group of younger politicians that were supporting Grace Mugabe and then also to the official opposition, the MDC? Well, how do you think things are going to shake out for them? Yeah, interesting, because, uh, you know, the way that the military takeover was was played uh, certainly in the in the Zimbabwean media when the when the general uh, you know general was announcing the, the action it was also seen as uh, rounding up elements that were destabilizing the state and those were indeed Grace Mugabe's uh, G40 faction G40 standing for generation 40 uh, roughly people in their 40s but uh, some of them a bit older than that but as a, as distinct from Menangagwa's uh, faction which is known as Lacoste after his nickname the, the crocodile so very poetic um, I mean, many of them were were uh, detained. Uh, apparently, some left the country. In fact, I saw a report uh, earlier today that that uh, at least one minister was was tortured uh, while he was uh, while he was taken. So, it's uh, I think uh, Menangagwa has a few jobs to do, and one of which is trying to hold the party together and reaching out to the to the other faction. Uh, the opposition is incredibly splintered. I mean, the movement for democratic change that Morgan Changarai uh, leads has split more than once. 
uh, and splintered. You still have you, you, you have Joyce Majuru's party that I mentioned earlier. You have Ten Diabeti, the former foreign minister who, who has his own party. There have been attempts to try and unite, um, but so far no, no great announcements. And uh, we have to see. I think they uh, Zanu PF will be very keen to go for elections which are scheduled for June July next year. Um, uh, and and uh, the opposition. Uh, to me, doesn't look uh, very strong, uh, even though they've come very close to winning elections before, and many have said that, in fact, they probably did win some of the elections that, that have been held, but uh, uh, the results were falsified, and there was cheating and, and fraud and so forth to keep ZANU-PF in power. And don't forget, ZANU-PF is an incredibly powerful political party with, that knows how to win elections by hook or by crook. Well, if you love international politics and international relations, it doesn't get any more fascinating and entertaining than what we're seeing here in Zimbabwe. Uh, Stephen Gruz is the head of governance and foreign policy programs at the South African Institute of International Affairs, and he is following this very, very closely. If you want to follow Stephen and what Saya is doing, uh, head over to their Twitter feed at Saya underscore info. That's S-A-I-I-A underscore info, I-N-F-O. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us and shedding some light on, on what again, what is just an absolutely fascinating series of events that have happened and will no doubt be equally interesting to watch going forward in the coming weeks and months. Thank you. I've enjoyed chatting to you guys. Kobus, taking a step back from, from everything that, that's happened, and you and I have been following this quite closely over the past week or two to see... Uh, all of the different facets of the events. I think what surprised me the most was not actually the China visit by Chuenge or the fact that Mnangagwa has such deep ties to China. I think there's going to be a continuity of Chinese policy in Zimbabwe. I think the Zimbabweans are going to really work hard to, to, to attract the Chinese to come in because I think they're the main source of investment and potentially aid and, and offering some stability in their foreign policy. But I guess what surprised me the most was we didn't hear any role for the United States. We didn't hear the State Department loudly condemning a coup or supporting a coup. In fact, remember, the United States doesn't even have an, doesn't even have an assistant secretary of state for African affairs. There's no one in charge. And in some ways, again, this is what goes back to what I said in the earlier part of the program. It feels like something big happened here. Even though Zimbabwe geopolitically is insignificant for either Beijing or Washington, we, it, it doesn't have the strategic importance that Djibouti has. It doesn't have the resources in the volumes that the DR Congo has. It's, it's got diamonds, great. It's got minerals, great. It has tobacco, great. But those are things that the Chinese and other investors can find elsewhere. It doesn't have that strategic value that other countries have. But yet still, something fascinating happened here. It also, as, as you said, it, it looks like a kind of a shift in the geopolitical order. You know, perhaps particularly the part of the geopolitical order where big countries are commenting on what's going on in small countries. Um, you know, that the, the, the fact that the Trump administration was so quiet on this and seeming seemed to maybe not have noticed it particularly, um, you know, or, or it didn't feel particularly kind of called on to, to become involved. That itself is is <laughs> interesting. I mean, the, you know, especially considering that, that China was so involved. But that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. No, it wouldn't have happened under Obama. And, and, and I don't even want to put this at the foot of Donald Trump. I think Obama was as disengaged from Africa 
in some ways as Trump is. I mean, he he had the pretense of it, but the substance of his Africa policy was more or less what we're seeing today for the most part. Yeah, no, definitely. Like Obama was was disengaged in Africa generally, but I think in this case, I mean, if this were just like for, you know, magically still the Obama era, I think the Obamas would have said something at least. You gotta think they would have. Really? Yeah, but it just... The world is changing, and this is this is an example of it. And so, stepping back a little bit even farther, what I've been watching here is watching the eight, first the 18th Party Congress, where Xi Jinping solidified his power in a way that we have not seen in a Chinese leader for decades. Uh, some say all the way back to Mao Zedong himself that a Chinese leader has not had this consolidation of power. So he's he's strong, he's confident. He's got the government and the military firmly aligned behind him. And then we had the Trump visit here, where in many ways that too was a turning point in, in international affairs, where China really was at the table with the Americans as equals. And that is not something we've seen before in previous Sino-US visits, where it was always the Americans imposing demands on the Chinese, things like human rights, trade. Trump made forced them to make no concessions whatsoever. And I think the Chinese and the reaction here in China after Trump left was, we are now officially equal with the United States. And that was something significant. And then on top of this, a couple weeks later, we have the Chuenga visit to Beijing. And it it just feels for me that, again, we're seeing, as you pointed out, the, the pieces on the chessboard are moving right now. And that just feels important to me. Again, I might be reading more into it than it deserves, but it just it's a feeling that something important is going on here. And there's also a feeling just being in Southern Africa that hopefully there's going to be there's some change coming in Southern Africa. Um, you know, Mugabe is gone. I mean, that's that's massive news. But for me, what went under the radar, and we will hopefully do a podcast about this soon, actually, is also that um, Jose Eduardo dos Santos of Angola is gone. Um, you know, another, like, generation-long reign. An- another long friend of the Chinese as well, an old friend of the Chinese as well. Exactly. So, so you know, kind of, it, it feels like there's these kind of tectonic plates in Southern African politics that are shifting, um, and that hopefully, 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 there'll be some form of greater economic development with it. I, uh, you know, so the last point is I'm not as optimistic as you are because the lesson that came out of the Arab Spring was these types of tumultuous overthrows of government tend not to lead to stability and economic development. That is one of the lessons that emerged from it. And I think it's, it's interesting. So the question is, what kind of leader will Mnangagwa become? Will he become a Paul Kagame in Rwanda? And this is where, again, the connection with the Chinese will be very important. What type of reforms does he focus on? Is he going to model his economy more on the so-called Beijing consensus, the idea of a strong state-controlled authoritarian capitalist economy that Paul Kagame and that Beijing advocate around the world? Or will he open up reforms according to the Washington consensus, a liberal democracy, make it easier for foreign investors uh, you loosen the reins on political control. I'm highly, highly skeptical that he will do that. Uh, I tend to think he will follow more in the Kagami model. Um, or will he follow in the Mugabe model? And the Mugabe model is just raping and pillaging and fleecing the place, which he's done pretty well, it seems like, Menangangwa over the... He's, he, my guess is he's not poor. Um, he probably has some apartments and some Swiss bank accounts. That's all speculation on my part. I don't have any personal knowledge on that. But Kobus, final question to you on this. Of those three, where do you think we will be a year from now? 
There's going to be a lot of continuity from the Mugabe era, you know, um, because Nangagwa was was so instrumental in a lot of the things that that Mugabe did. So I don't think this that's it's necessarily going to change that much. Um, there is indications that they they uh, in the short term there's been some crackdowns on on petty corruption, which apparently is you know Zimbabweans are happy about, um, and then. China is going to definitely be a massive player. It's going to they're going to continue to be a massive player, and I would suggest the UK is going to be a massive player, um, and you know, and South Africa, um, and you know, between those three, we'll we'll see what happens. Okay, well, there is a very lively discussion going on about all things related to Zimbabwe over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. In fact, in our newsletter, our email newsletter that goes out every Monday. Uh, almost every story was about the Chinese foreign policy implications of what happened in Zimbabwe. And then over on my LinkedIn page, you can find me at Eric Olander, E-R-I-C-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Almost half a million people are discussing all of the different facets of China's engagement in Africa with a particular attention on Zimbabwe. So this is a really a hot topic right now. Lots of people are writing about it, thinking about it, discussing it. Uh, so are we. We will continue this, this discussion. I have to say it was a little bit tough for us to find a guest. So we are going to keep looking for guests to talk about this. Uh, we struggled this week, and thank goodness Stephen was available. But we will try to give more insights on what is happening in Southern Africa right now, both Angola and in Zimbabwe. So for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.